Hello, my name is Will and you're listening to Exploding Helicopter, the only podcast in the world dedicated to celebrating helicopter explosions in film. Now, James Bond is the most famous spy in movie history, and during his 50-year career he's faced many deadly threats, but his future never looked less certain than back in the early 90s. The previous 007 film, Licence to Kill, had tanked at the box office, and a lengthy and bitter copyright dispute had meant there hadn't been a new film for six years. Meanwhile, in that time, the Cold War had ended, and a slew of other slick, big-budget action movies had emerged to fill the gap. So when Goldeneye was released in 1995, the big question was, did the world want or even need James Bond anymore? To help me find the answers, I'm joined by a man who is a sexist, misogynistic dinosaur. He's a relic of the Cold War whose boyish charms are frankly lost on me. My guest today is Tim Postins from the Bride of Crapula website. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank, thank you. What a wonderful intro that was. I feel, I feel, I feel great about that. Thanks a lot. I think I pulled a few punches there. So, <laughs> oh, uh... did you? Oh, right. Okay. I, I'd hate to see what the first draft was. <laughs> thank you very much. For anyone who isn't already familiar with your wonderful website, do you want to tell listeners about what they can find at Bride of Crapula? I'm one of the Brides of Crapula. Uh, myself and my colleague, Mikey Papadopoulos, spent all oh, far too much of our time watching what originally were the kind of DVDs you buy from a supermarket for a pound at a time. The original concept was how on earth do you make and release a film and sell it for a pound and hope to make any money out of it? And we realised that you don't hope to make any money out of it. You just make the most atrocious movies possible and just hope that anyone buys it. Uh, so what we decided to do originally was to buy a hundred of these things and try and review them all. But it soon segued into just covering all kinds of films that are considered terrible on all levels. So we basically just watch, laugh at, and then try and review the worst that cinema has to offer. And what is the worst that cinema has offered you so far? Opinion is divided on this. I think at the moment the top three is something along the lines of probably at number one or number whatever you want say the bottom number is probably Birdemic Shock and Terror is probably the worst film we've ever seen followed quickly by The Room and then there's everything else after that who knows anything you like Birdemic is a, is a film I've heard a, a lot about at various points I've yet to see it myself oh, it's, it's a stunner it's, it's like someone's having a nervous breakdown through a camera on screen for your pleasure or more, more, more pertinently your pain I think it's more likely <laughs> it's atrocious, it's atrocious. If, you, if you've never seen people um, if you've never seen people try and fight off BBC Acorn Electron rendered uh, birds with coat hangers, then you really haven't lived. <laughs> but the, the most amazing thing about Birdemic is if, if you if you ever find yourself watching it and you ever feel the need to live tweet it, if you act the lead actor, a guy called Alan Barr, or Barr, whatever he's called, he will follow you for the duration of you um, of you live tweeting that movie. And then as soon as you start getting, you start ripping into it properly, he'll unfollow you again. It's, it's quite interesting. It's very, <laughs> very interactive in that way. Well, I'll make sure that I do that when I uh, get around to watching it. Please do. So do you want to tell me about anything interesting that you've seen lately, either good or bad? Well, I suppose because we're, we're here to talk about, talk about Goldeneye, I mean, the most recent thing I saw in a cinema was, uh, was Spectre, the latest Bond movie. But on top of that, I mean, I, I found myself, because it's coming up to sort of, a, well, the start of awards season, so, you know, a lot of the movies we're seeing are, are, are the ones that are going to be up for awards coming soon. And I seem to be seeing a lot of biopics based on true stories, where the performances are unbelievable, but the stories themselves are lack a little bit. So I don't know if you saw Everest. I haven't, no. So Everest is the is the story of a, an ill-fated climbing attempt, obviously up, up Mount Everest to the roof of the world that went tragically wrong. It's a beautifully acted movie and the special effects are great, but it's one of these things where it feels like they've on purpose tried to tell the story to su- with such truth that they kind of left out the idea of trying to make it exciting for the audience, if you know what I mean. The, the same thing's true. There's a couple of movies coming out soon. Black Mass is one and The Danish Girl's another. Similar to last year with The Theory of Everything and Imitation Game, two films that were way up there for the Oscars. Movies where... That the commitment to tell the actual true story has sort of left the, the film overall feeling a little bit flat. 
whilst I haven't seen Everest, I am sort of familiar with that particular story. I'm a bit of a junkie for those type of extreme exploration or extreme survival books. And I've read quite a few books by... Uh, I mean, if most of the people who actually survived that expedition seem to have uh, brought out a book on it. So you could almost have an entire library just of books on that particular expedition. And when they announced that, that they were making that film, I did wonder how they were going to make a story out of this because there's a you know there's a whole variety of competing accounts of that particular expedition and did wonder how it was going to then play out in a in a movie i think it's based predominantly on john krakow's book i think it's is it called into thin air i think it might be called mm. um, and, I, and i think what they've done is they've taken his story to be pretty much fact in in terms of the in terms of the movie but there are influences from a lot of the other stories going in there and like you say completely complete uh, conflicting arguments about what took place but ultimately i think the problem is is that because things are dealt with in such a real way real doesn't necessarily come across as exciting on a cinema screen okay thanks tim i think it's time to get stuck into goldeneye so let's listen to a few choice sound bites from the film stitched together with an unimaginative narration is the target. 72 hours ago, a secret weapon system was detonated over Saturnaya. And the threat is real. GoldenEye exists. A radiation surge that destroys everything with an electronic circuit. You can still depend on one man. I want you to find GoldenEye. Three. Find who took it. Two. And stop it. One. Goldeneye came out in 1995. It was the 17th official movie in the series. It introduced a new actor into the role of Bond, with Pierce Brosnan stepping into the shoes of the Secret Service spy. The story sees 007 investigate the theft of a device which controls a satellite weapon capable of crippling a country's electronic systems. Along the way, Bond tangles with a sex-crazed sadomasochistic henchwoman, a renegade Russian general, and a double-crossing 00 agent. Tim, Goldeneye was your sort of choice to look at uh, for this uh, podcast. Do you want to sort of tell me about your sort of history with this film and, and kind of why you chose it? A Bond movie was the very first thing I saw on screen. The first movie I ever saw without parents, with just friends, you know, without that idea of the excursion to the cinema was The Living Daylights. So I was very much as a child, a Dalton person. But really, because of that six year gap between Licence Kill and Goldeneye, Goldeneye came around when I was when I was properly getting into films, when I was properly, you know, becoming a an obsessive as it were. And so I saw it in the cinema with my friend Steve when I was uh, when I was what, about probably twenty, nineteen twenty. But I do, but I do remember there being a sense of expectation amongst the audience. I mean, you know, we we were in a, a pretty standard multiplex, I think. Um, and but you could you could you got a real sense that people were waiting for this, that this was a landmark movie. And I think you still get the sense now with with when Bond movies come out that everybody comes out of the woodwork. You know, everybody everybody likes different kinds of movies, but, but when certain films come along, it's almost like everybody arrives at the same time. I'm sure the same thing is going to be true of Star Wars as well. Well, as we've sort of already mentioned, sort of at a couple of points already, this was the sort of first Bond film for six years, and in many ways, Goldeneye was essentially a sort of reboot of the Bond franchise. What do you think they got right, and what do you think they got wrong? Brosnan is the thing they got right. Uh, the, the casting of Brosnan in that character at that time with, like you, you said in the intro, the changing nature of, of, uh, of the world in terms of politics and, but also the changing nature of what we needed from movies. I mean, Brosnan was a perfect choice. I mean, I, I, I'm sure a lot of people know that he was originally touted to play the role when Timothy Dalton got the part, but couldn't because of, a, I think, a TV contract or something like that kept him away from doing it. But when they finally got him, he was that a little bit mature and a little bit more knowing and, and, he, and he fit the time absolutely perfectly. 
I think Brosnan is definitely one of the the high points of uh, this this particular film, and I think he looks great. You know, he has a kind of effortless sort of confidence uh, in this particular role, which uh, you know I feel that Dalton. I quite like Dalton. I'm not I'm not a, a huge Dalton fan, but he did always seem to me to have a bit of a sort of like a bit of rather starch sort of uh, <laughs> stuck in his collar. Well, I think there's a, there's a big contrast between those two actors, and I think the gap between them helped an audience. Maybe they sort of needed someone who was a little easier. I don't know about easier on the eye necessarily, but certainly easier on the watch, as it were. I mean, it, it, I mean, I know it's it's an argument that's been made before, but Brosnan seems to have that ability to almost take a little bit from every Bond that's come before and, and amalgamate them together to make a new character that's interesting. Connery is always quite famous for being quite cool and quite calm, and I suppose even quite cold. But there's a little bit of that in Brosnan as well. And, and then you look at, I don't know, someone like George Lazenby, I don't know what you said, something like his sort of physicality, the, the, the sheer bigness of the guy. And then with Roger Moore, there's... Uh, I, well, everyone talks about the wit, but it's sort of a wit that's masking the ridiculousness and maybe grounding the stupidity of what's happening around him. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? I mean, the, the, the one-liners are there almost to say, I know this is crazy, I'm with you. Um, and then, like you say about Dalton, there's a, there's a hardness to him and, and a, maybe that same coldness, but it almost feels like, and there's a little bit of this in Goldeneye with Brosnan, that it's masking a little bit of pain as well with, with Dalton. And that, that definitely comes through in, in the scenes. You know, there's one sort of beach scene in Goldeneye where there's where there's that one one part where we have to give him a bit of a human side. So let's let's talk about the men he's killed and the women he's loved and all this sort of thing. But there's definitely a little bit of that in Brosnan as well, especially in Goldeneye. I mean, as Brosnan moved forward, that all got a little bit shaved off. But I think Brosnan is still the high point of the subsequent movies that maybe didn't deliver quite as well as Goldeneye. I don't know how you would see it, but I would say that uh, Goldeneye is sort of Brosnan's best Bond outing. Oh, without question, both in terms of him in the role and also the film overall itself, absolutely without question. And it's interesting what you're saying about sort of what he brings to the role and he brings a sort of a little bit of um, each sort of Bond, because I had heard somebody sort of describe Brosnan's Bond as Roger Connery in the, <laughs> in the sense that he is sort of amalgamating uh, sort of dis- different aspects of those two actors. I, I really do hope that Sean Connery's brother is actually called Roger, that would be one. Uh, I, I think he's called Neil, actually. He is, isn't he? Because that's right, because didn't he... Didn't he try and do a bit of a coattail career off the back of Connery, off the back of Sean Connery's success? He did. I can't remember. Oh, it's is it called Operation Kid Brother back it's, in the 60s? It's something like that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. But then, I mean, I love the, the, the amount of actors, sort of siblings who've tried writing that. Isn't there a, isn't there a, hasn't Harrison Ford's younger brother tried to, tried to break into films a couple of times? I think it's Terence Ford, I think. Oh my goodness. I, I was unaware of this. If you ever see, if you ever find any of his movies, uh, avoid, I think it's probably the best thing to do. Another thing I think they got right with this film was the action sort of set pieces here. And I think there was definitely a sense that uh, they needed to deliver because we'd had a lot of other sort of action, uh, series, um, sort of rise up in the, in the kind of the gap with the Bond movies. So you had the sort of Jack Ryan series of movies. You had the Die Hard, your Lethal Weapon, uh, movies here. But the, the action set pieces I think are really good in this film certainly the opening sequence at the dam is uh, for me a real uh, highlight of, of this film and certainly of, of many Bond entries yeah absolutely you could argue it's sort of the high point of Brosnan's entire Bond and it's over within his first five minutes of his career it's crazy. <laughs> um, I mean, that, that's arguable I suppose what I liked was the kind of the sequence of shots up until he does the sort of bungee jump off the off the dam where it kind of teases the intro of Brosnan as the new Bond. So it's a nice set piece and also nicely directed as a way of introducing you to the new 007. 
I mean, like you say, I love that one shot of, of the character running around the corner at the top of the dam, and he, he's just undoing the rope over his shoulder as he runs past the camera. And as he runs past, the rope hits into the foreground of the shot. I don't know, I don't know why I've always liked that shot, but I have. There's a sort of a, there's a sort of a simplicity to it, but also an excitement. I mean, there's a hundred different ways, a hundred different directors would have shot that, but Martin Campbell sort of picked a way to make it even that one little piece of setup interesting. Well, we've talked about a couple of the aspects of this film which make Goldeneye good. Uh, perhaps we should sort of touch on a, on a. <laughs> On a couple of the uh, issues that we may have with this movie, is there anything that you want to, uh, to highlight, Tim? <laughs> do you want to talk music now, or do you want to wait five minutes? Let's get stuck <laughs> into the music. Okay. Um, uh, well, the music the music is composed by a guy called is Eric Serra, isn't it? Who just done I think Leon for Luke Besson, and and it does feel like the cues that Luke Besson said no to. <laughs> it feels like the stuff that was left on the audio room floor, as it were. I don't know. It's horrible. It's uh, the incidental music just ranges from very strange electro synth kind of soaring strings and then back again. And then the closing credit music is the worst thing I think I've ever heard in my life. I would completely agree. There is a piece of music which is used to score a car chase down the side of a mountain, which is a horrible piece of sort of squelching electro funk <laughs> and it is just hor- it is just horrendous and it really takes you out of the film because you you know I was trying to think what would I have thought about this in 1995 and I I, I hope I would have thought no this is awful absolutely when you when you think about the things that were happening in music at that time both in terms of bands but also in terms of electronica in the mid 90s the the <laughs> idea that this guy on his you know one man and his bon tempi organ is scoring a bond movie is just quite ludicrous it's a while since i've watched golden eye so i had completely forgotten about the closing song which was horrific <laughs> oh, it absolutely me. stunned me because i really wasn't expecting that <laughs> yeah it's um it comes through as it, i mean obviously it's a ballad and it's what's it called it's called the experience of love and it's just it wrenches inside your heart and just i don't know crushes it it's just the most atrocious thing i've ever but it's actually sung i think it's actually performed literally by eric Serra, the the um the, the composer and maybe he thought that people will have left by now anyway i'm going to get my song on this. i'm going to get my song on this soundtrack maybe that's what i'm going to do well i don't think we're alone in thinking that the much of the music for this film wasn't that good because from what i understand actually parts of this film were actually rescored because I don't think it originally even featured the sort of classic Bond theme tune in the sort of Eric Serra's original score and that was oh, okay. sort of subsequently sort of rewritten and stuck back into the film during the uh, tank chase sequence. Well they didn't rewrite enough then, they should have rewritten the lot. The sort of John Barry scores from the sort of classic Bonds in the sort of 60s and 70s I think have dated really well and mm-hmm. still, you know, they may sound of their time but they still sound good whereas I, I can't imagine that, you know, anyone now listening to this the score for this film would think it were good and certainly I can't imagine that it is going to uh, mature like a fine wine in the next <laughs> 10 or 20 years. No, I can't, I can't see them playing it as part of the Bond suite at the Albert Hall when they're celebrating Spectre or something like that. <laughs> you can't imagine David Arnold conducting it, can you? There's a uh, very little chance of that ever happening. <laughs> One of the other points that uh, I, I had a real problem with in this film was the comedy and the not just the quantity but also the quality of it. I think there is uh, some really weak one-liners in this uh, in this film. Rewatching it this week in order to prepare for the podcast here, I was surprised at uh, how I didn't remember how much comic relief there is how many characters are in this movie to make jokes and provide exposition at the same time. I mean, you've got, you know, Joe Don Baker playing the sort of CIA 
equivalent of Bond, Robbie Coltrane, Alan Cumming, even even the Bond women to a certain extent as well. But still, most of the terrible one-liners come out of Brosnan. Yeah, he has to deliver some really, frankly, very weak one-liners, and they are very they're very literal. I mean, they're not even there's just no wit there. I, I can't think that somebody you're sort of looking at the script, reading these lines on the page, would think, yeah, this is a this is a good line. We should we should shoot this. I find it very bizarre. What, what's your favourite or least? I think my least favourite is actually probably not one that Brosnan has to say. It's probably one that Honor Top delivers, which is when they're at the beginning of the film, she's, she shoots an air duct and said, and then sort of says to somebody later, I had to ventilate someone. Oh, yes. And it's yeah. just so, like, you can imagine the sort of the brainstorm, it, it, that just being the first idea that someone threw out. And they said, yep, we'll take, we no more, don't hear any others. We'll take well, that. I was going to say, you imagine, you imagine what the rest of the list was. I, I don't know. I'm not a fan, might have worked. <laughs> but then I do think there is one one-liner that I really do like, and there's a, there's a scene where Bond is, uh, catches on a top in like the steam room of a hotel, and he pulls the gun on her, and she says, you don't need the gun, and he just looks at her and very very cutely says, that depends on your definition of safe sex. Yes, and I think, um, did they pull, did they use that in the trailer, I, I think? I think they put that everywhere, because it's the one they had that was good. <laughs> And I don't know about you, but I, I actually put my sort of fingers in front of my eyes and I put my thumbs into my ears during the Q branch sequence because that comedy, uh, comedy in inverted commas, <laughs> was just horrific. It was like a, a reject scene from Moonraker. It was a bit strange. I mean, Desmond Llewellyn has clearly aged quite a lot in the role of Q between License to Kill and uh, Goldeneye. I um, mean, License to Kill has got quite an active role, hasn't he? He's out, he's out of the... He's out of the lab. He's helping Bond on his mission in Mexico. But by the time he gets to Golden Knight, it's clear that the, the, the role may be getting beyond Desmond Llewellyn. Weirdly, perhaps worse than he was in, in the roles that came after that, you know, when he was even older. But what he's left to work with is pretty terrible. There's one, there's one scene where he demonstrates the pen that's going to become a, the explosive pen that's going to become a big part of the plot later on. And I think he, does he put it in the, the pocket of a dummy and then runs away and then it explodes? And he says to Bond, don't say it as if the line Bond's about to give is so obvious. And then Bond says, the writing's on the wall. You're like, oh, right, okay, of course, write that line, yeah, okay. But the way that Hugh says it to him is like, there's only one possible line Bond <laughs> say here. And yet it's, oh, it's that, that's the one, really, that one? I think Hugh was definitely right. Don't say it. Don't say any of it. Don't, don't, say, any of it. <laughs> don't say any of it, yeah. Let's talk about some of the ways that they did sort of update the, the Bond series with uh, Goldeneye. And I think one of the very noticeable things about this this film is the sort of shift in the representation of women so we have judy dench as bond's boss m with the first her first appearance in the series uh, we also have sort of money penny providing a more sort of spunky portrayal of that particular character and we have a very risque hench person in xena uh, on a top uh, what did you make of this uh, recalibration obviously up until golden we've only ever seen m as a male character but Judy Dench just uh, obviously walks on screen and take, takes control of uh, takes control of M like she's been playing the role a whole life. She, she's fantastic in it, but what she does also is she she does a very good job of bringing around those those themes, those new attitudes. She's the one who who you were quoting in my beautiful intro as the calling <laughs> Bond the the sexist misogynist dinosaur. But also also there's a just before that I think Brosnan says you know she's looking for a drink in one of the desk drawers and Brosnan says your predecessor kept cognac and she says I prefer bourbon. You know this is a this is a modern woman running a modern agency in a modern world it seems she really grounds it but what what's very interesting is in even in that one scene with him she tells bond that that she hates his method she doesn't approve of what he's doing she's more than happy to send him to her to his death she's not this bean counter they think she is but at the end she still says come back alive 
and she gives him this almost schoolgirlish little look as if as if she's going to start giggling at any minute. So there's they're bringing this thing up to date, but they're still leaving enough in there for Bond to play the games he always did. I don't know what your opinion on Moneypenny is as well, but in rewatching the movie, I really saw a lot of what Naomi Harris is doing with Moneypenny in the in the Daniel Craig movies from watching what Samantha Bond's doing in that one. I would completely agree with that. It feels, especially as it's probably the first time we've seen that from that character, so it feels really refreshing and, and quite sort of startling. And talking of, of startling, I think Xena Onatop is, uh, I think, one of the most extraordinary and interesting uh, hench people, I think, in the entire Bond series. Uh, <laughs> uh, it feels a real sort of Fleming-esque character in that sense of of kind of combining sex and violence and... I don't know. I mean, Goldeneye was a PG-13, and it really felt to me they must have been pushing at some boundaries with uh, this portrayal of this character. Well, I think eye-popping is the word you might want to use. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe literally. Yeah, I mean, they obviously, you know, playing playing with sex as a, as a weapon uh, by a female character as well brought Goldeneye completely up to date. Famke Janssen playing the part, I mean, I... I and my understanding was a was a little known actress, especially on the world stage at that point. But obviously, it catapulted her because she absolutely goes for it. You know, there's not there's nothing left in the dressing room with this, with this performance. <laughs> I mean, literally, there's nothing left in the dressing room with this performance. She is uh, she is absolutely stunning in this. And and you imagine an actress of of any caliber going at that role with anything but complete vigor would have it would have fallen flat and it would have been very very strange i mean i guess i guess it's working with martin campbell as director but also pierce brosnan as co-star that lets her really sort of let her hair down and go for it and in terms of the sort of geopolitics in which this this film is is taking place i was quite sort of struck by how actually old school bond it felt so obviously this was made in 1995 the cold war had ended and the sort of the soviet union had you know started to uh, splinter and, and fracture yet this feels certainly from the title sequence you know onward where we see sort of you know uh, hammer and sickles floating around and busts of lenin's head uh, you know, we, we see all these uh, weapons with CCCP plastered on the side of it. It does sort of feel as if the, as if the sort of the Cold War is still sort of in full tilt in this film. And it feels a little bit as if, it struck me a little bit as if the Bond series was a little bit unsure quite who they were supposed to be sort of fighting at this point. Yeah, I think, I think in the, but then I think in the mid 90s, what with everything that was happening, Hollywood itself found itself, found it difficult to find its villains again. I think it was only the year before that True Lies came out, which apparently actually, from what I read, um, apparently the Golden Eye was actually changed quite a lot because of its similarity to the plot of True Lies. I'm not exactly sure in what, what respect that was. But looking back at a movie like that now with that sort of Middle Eastern villain, that's that's gone by the wayside. And then Golden Eye itself as well with this this sort of pretty archetypal Russian villainy as, as almost uh, had gone by the wayside even before GoldenEye came out. But but there's like you said, they're still using the CCT, uh, CCP uh, logos, but also the idea of the amount of cement and the amount of and the amount of greyness <laughs> to the sets. I mean, the dam at the beginning, obviously, but there's just there's just a lot of very down downtrodden Russia. I mean, e- even in to a certain extent, the St. Petersburg tank sequence, which is a wonderful, wonderful sequence. There's still that idea of you know Bond is driving this sort of rusty old tank, chase, chasing a a terrible tiny little Russian car towards a really old old military train. There's still there is still that sense that this could this could be set in 1965 as opposed to 1995. Well, let's talk about the villain in this film. That is obviously played by uh, professional northerner Sean Bean. What did you make of him as the villain here? 
I mean, you've got to love the accent for a start. <laughs> <laughs> you've got to love the you've got to love the slight plumminess by way of Sheffield. It's uh, <laughs> it's difficult to know with with Sean Bean what he's what he's attempting most of the time. I mean, obviously, obviously, Sean Bean's an effective actor and work and works very well, and he's, he's obviously an effective villain in the movie. But when you when you look back on the movie, when you're watching the movie, it seems fine. Here's the villain doing his thing. And when you look back on it, you think, is he a pretty weak villain? Is he a, is the villain, both is the villain weak and is he pretty weak in the role? And I couldn't work it out. I've never really been able to work it out because he's surrounded by really interesting, like you say, hench people, um, of varying degrees, whether you've got on the top, we've got Alan Cumming playing, uh, Boris, the, uh, he's a computer programmer, isn't he? He's sort of surrounded by these other characters that almost take away any sense of personality that you need from him. I don't mind Sean Bean as an actor. You know, he's been good in, in many, many things, but he just doesn't quite, uh, he just doesn't quite project enough, I don't think. He certainly, you know, if you think back to, you know, the classic sort of Bond villains that we've had with, you know, people like Donald Pleasance or, or mm. Christopher Lee, you know, Sean Bean, you know, if you were ranking the kind of villains, <laughs> Sean Bean would be, I don't know where he would rank, but it certainly probably wouldn't be in the top half of uh, any list. Probably next to Jonathan Price, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Which again, Jonathan Price, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a story for a different exploding helicopter podcast, I'm sure. But but Jonathan Price has got to go down as one of the worst as well. One sort of final point I just wanted to sort of uh, sort of touch on because we've we've spoken a little bit about sort of how they updated this particular film, but I did notice that as much as GoldenEye was updating certain things, it actually seemed to be a sort of Bond restoration project. So uh, you know, we have the DB Martin in the film, we have. It's chock full of one-liners, got loads of Russians, you know, and at the end of the film, we have the villain's lair. It turns out to be this sort of giant uh, submerged crater. And it just it felt as much as for all the things that they were updating. Actually, it felt like they were sort of going back to some of the sort of classic tropes of the of the Bond series. Do you think it was more as much to do with satisfying the audience as it was to making the making the movie they wanted to make? I think it might be essentially a sort of lack of confidence. It had been off screen for a long time. You've got a new actor. They're updating various things in terms of trying to find a place for this franchise in a post-Cold War era. Bit of a sort of sexual politic recalibration. So I think that they were essentially a lack of... I think it was essentially a sort of lack of confidence. Because I think, interestingly, Martin Campbell was involved in this again. I think that Casino Royale is almost the... Bond film that GoldenEye could have been if they decided to sort of go full tilt down that particular that particular route. Well, Martin Campbell's an interesting case as well, I mean, because the guy has basically resurrected the Bond franchise twice and reintroduced a, a very successful Bond twice, and yet you could, I mean, I don't know, I don't know what your opinion, but but the two Bond films are the only decent films he's ever made, possibly. I don't know. Um, I think his, I think the first Zorro movie that he made was was very good. I can't remember the second one that he did, but I thought the first one was, you know, I really love those old uh, swashbucklers that used again in the 30s and 40s. And it feels to me that uh, that Zorro movie was a real sort of throwback to those films. And, I, I, you know, and I think there's, they have a lot of charm. I think Banderas and Catherine Zeta-Jones are sort of two great leads. They have a great sort of chemistry in that film. And there's, there's certainly, you know, it's action-packed sort of sword fights. So I, you know, I think that was a that was a very good movie. The sequel uh, really wasn't. <laughs> it really, really wasn't. Yeah, he, you know, he's done some good stuff on TV, but um, you know, it's always a slight puzzle to me that he hasn't had a better career than he perhaps should have done because you know, with GoldenEye and Casino Royale, and and I would argue with that Zorro film, he he's shown that he can. Um, 
you know that he he can direct action he can also do can also sort of handle comedy and, and drama perhaps better evidenced in his uh, sort of tv work well, so, but also also what i think martin campbell does really well especially in goldeneye is he gives the actors space to do some thing some things that that they may not get to do in with another director there's a, there's plenty of examples through the film where where you get the impression that he's directing the scene trying to give the actor something interesting to do as opposed to just giving you what you might call shoe leather to get you onto the next action scene. I mean, but we've seen, but we've seen in both his Bond movies, the, the guy knows where to put a camera and how to move it and how to, te- and how to tell actors what to do in front of it. I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful moment. One of my favorite moments in Golden Age, it's a tiny little moment, but it might even be my favorite piece of Brosnan. There's a bit where he's trying to arm a bomb with his back to this wall in the lair at the end and they're firing machine guns at him and there's sort of sparks spraying all over him. And all Brosnan does is he just sort of shrugs it away while he carries on. He sort of, he sort of shrugs like he doesn't really care there's bullets hitting behind him. It's a really nice little, ca- uh, little, little moment for the character. Okay. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking about the exploding helicopter action. Want to know what's happening for the weekend? Then check out Subject Cinema's 3-Minute Weekend, spotlighting all the new films hitting your local theaters. Join host T.C. Kirkham as he gives you the 411 on all the new blockbuster releases as well as the indies that might be coming to your town and choices for video on demand as well. 3-Minute Weekend, every Friday morning from Subject Cinema and eCinema1.com, a member of the Lamb Podcasting Network, a PNR Network's podcast. We're back, and we've got two helicopter explosions to discuss. The first occurs midway through the film. Bond and Natalia are captured and tied up inside a special stealth helicopter. The chopper's been booby-trapped, and its missiles automatically fire and loop round to come straight back at the vehicle. Luckily, Bond manages to headbutt the ejector seat button, and our heroes are shot out of the stationary whirlybird seconds before the missiles hit. Tim, what did you make of this first chopper fireball? It's amazing and utterly unnecessary. (laughs) It must go. It must go down as one of the most unnecessary. I mean, I don't know. You're more of an expert on this than I am. But I mean, the point is, they they're both captured by the villains. They're locked in the helicopter. The helicopter is set to blow itself up. They escape from the helicopter and are, and are immediately captured again. <laughs> what's what's changed in anyone's life other than that we're we're short one helicopter now and two missiles? Well, they are captive by a different group of people. Are they? But well, oh, I guess not really, because they're sort of. <laughs> Old Gromenko comes back into it, doesn't he, very rapidly. So, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe nothing, maybe there's nothing's changed, but you know what? We're, we are down another helicopter. So that is it's, true. it's in, that, that's a win in my book. It's, it's followed by probably, we were talking about one-liners earlier. It's followed by probably the worst one-liner in the entire movie. Um, <laughs> as the, do, do you want to do, go on, you do it. I don't want to. I, I can't bring myself to say that. Okay, then, well, I'll tell everyone then. Uh, the helicopter blows up, and as Bond is pulling um, the uh, Bond girl out of the helicopter, he says, the things we do for frequent flyer miles. Yeah, and I think that comes back to what we were sort of discussing earlier about the sort of the comedy in this film. It just, <laughs> you know, it just feels like no time was spent on these one-liners. I mean, why not? Why don't, you know, if the main scriptwriters couldn't do decent ones, why didn't they just sort of get a couple of comics in to kind of, you know, <laughs> back I mean, a few lines, back a few different variations around? But the sequence is incredibly well directed it's, it's almost as far as i know it's almost other than a couple of little jokes here and there it's pretty much wordless it's all done visually you know Piers brosnan sees that the, the rockets are going to fire he, he starts panicking he's moving around and then the rockets do fire it's, it's it's beautifully directed but it's just it doesn't really advance the plot 
Although we do get to see something that I have never seen in any other film before, which is an ejector seat in a helicopter, which ah, I, yes. I probably need to investigate this, but I don't think helicopters come with ejector seats. Well, I mean, the, the, the propellers would cause an issue in that respect, wouldn't they? Before the ejector seat fires, we see the rotor blades are sort of ejected off of whatever they're spinning around on, and then the <laughs> then the ejector seat sort of fires, which obviously... That's okay in this circumstance because the helicopter is is on the ground and stationary. But at what other time would an ejector seat be useful if it's going to work like that? Because if it's if it's in the air and those rotor blades come off, it's going to be sinking like a stone. Well, sure, surely the ejector seat should be down then, shouldn't it? It should be through the floor rather than through the roof. If you're in the air, you eject downwards out of the helicopter that way. That would make more sense. That would make equally as much sense. That would make. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting you say ejector seat though, because rewatching it again, like what I noticed is the, the the shot you get of the actual explosion when the when the compartment flies away from the helicopter. For me, looked exactly like the similar scene in Die Hard Two, where Bruce Willis yes. is locked in locked in the cockpit of a plane when a bunch of grenades are thrown, and as he as it explodes, he hits the ejector seat and he sort of flies up to the camera on this diagonal angle and then drops away again. It's almost exactly the same shot. Well, nobody better tell Rennie Harlan that. <laughs> well, no, the day we start stealing from Rennie Harlan is a terrible <laughs> day for mankind. <laughs> So let's talk about the second exploding helicopter. That happens towards the end of the film. Once again, Bond and Natalia are involved. They've just escaped a plane crash when Onatop arrives in a helicopter. The uh, homicidal hottie abseils down and tries to crush Bond between her thighs. Uh, cleverly improvising, Bond reattaches Onatop to her abseil rope and shoots the helicopter that's hovering overhead. The pilot is killed and the out-of-control chopper veers off crushing on a top against a tree before it crashes into the ground. Tim, what's your verdict on this one? This is lovely, isn't it? This is a wonderful way to get rid of a, of a top villain in a Bond movie. Um, I, I, <laughs> I'm not sure there's ever been a more uh, creative way of death by exploding helicopter. I'm, I imagine it's normally the explosion that kills people when these things go. But the idea of it dragging someone away by the rope that they were using to abseil down from is just, it's just wonderful. Yeah, it's uh, as you say, it's a very fitting end for uh, On a Top, and she does seem to actually sort of enjoy her own death, which uh, not many uh, hench people do. But, <laughs> well, she's enjoyed uh... everybody else's death up to this point. You imagine <laughs> she's got a vested interest in her own. And I quite liked the way the helicopter actually sort of came down sideways. Not, uh, not don't often sort of see them come down in that that particular direction. I've just been thinking about it. It seems like this is not just an exploding helicopter podcast. This is a podcast for the films they'll never play on an in-flight movie as well. <laughs> If you ever want a list of the films that you will never see on a, on an aeroplane uncut, it's right here, isn't it? Would they ever show the airport movies on an in-flight movie? <laughs> well, is there, a, isn't there a joke in Airplane where they where they uh, say, "Oh, we're everyone's in a bit of a panic. Why don't you switch on the local TV?" And when they turn it on, it's a it's a film about a plane crash <laughs> into the runway. Oh dear! That sounds uh, like a very uh, airplane type gag. Uh, I don't know if you know about this one, but there, there actually may have been there may have been one more in Goldeneye as well. There's a, a first draft of the movie that I've, I've read online, and I don't know if it's genuine. I presume it is. It's written it's written by Michael France, who is credited with the story for the movie. But the entire opening sequence takes place on a train that Bond is on because they think there's going to be some sort of threat to some financiers that are on there. And it turns out that there, there is a bomb on this train because it's been planted by a guy who is, um, who's posing as, as the sommelier on this, on this very posh train serving, serving wine and champagne. And the reason Bond realizes that he's not who he says he is is because he serves champagne to the ladies first, uh, sorry, serves champagne to the hosts first rather than the ladies. 
uh, which apparently is a little bit like Red Grant in from Rush with Love. It's how Bond knows this guy isn't right. But there's a there's a chase through the train and they end up in the in the sort of the the garage part of the train where the cars are kept for the transport at the end of it. The train goes into a, a tunnel and there's a helicopter following it into the tunnel. There's a big old action sequence and ultimately the train and the helicopter both explode while Bond drives away across the roof of the train on one of the cars. It's a really interesting scene that obviously never made it into the movie because as I say, I think this was the first draft. But what struck me was how much it seemed exactly like Mission Impossible, which come which came out what a year after Goldeneye. Yeah, it did come out a year afterwards, and that that film obviously features a, a classic exploding helicopter sequence in the uh, in the Channel Tunnel. So yeah, very interesting. Um, that sort of early draft of Goldeneye did include that particular that particular sequence because uh, from what you've described there, I would definitely have uh, loved to see that in a in a Bond movie. Let's hope it was real. I mean, this, these things these things may be fake, but you never know. We, we can but dream that this would have happened for real. OK, well, I think that wraps things up for this show. Tim, I'd just like to say thanks for uh, coming on the show. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. If you've enjoyed listening to the show, then go and check out the Exploding Helicopter website. And even if you haven't enjoyed listening to the show, go and check it out anyway, as you might prefer it. Alternatively, you can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Letterboxd, Google+. I'm spread so thin you could roll me up and use me as a Rizzler. We'll be back soon, but until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.